And Lord, continue your goodness now as we open up your word. Would you work in our hearts so that the evil one couldn't snatch this word away, so that no worries or fears would choke it out, so that no trials or pressures would burn it out, but Lord, that it would go deep into our hearts like a seed into the soil, sprout, sink roots down, and bear much fruit, Lord. Let your word have power in our hearts. And help me, Lord, as I preach now. Help me, Lord, to, to preach this the way you'd want it to be preached, with the heart and the wisdom. I need your help. Come and do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. So as you've already heard from some people, we're in the middle, uh, or coming towards the end, towards the end, of a preaching series called The Fight of Faith. And what we're targeting in this series is to study different passages and learn what does it mean to have faith in Jesus. We're trying to avoid Christianese, trying to avoid cliches, and trying to just get right down to the nitty-gritty of what really, tangibly, does it mean to have faith in Jesus. And so we've been doing this for a couple, number of weeks now. This morning, I want us to tackle the topic of what's the connection between faith in Jesus on the one hand and obedience to Jesus on the other hand. Are they connected? What's their connection? What's the relationship between trusting Jesus and obeying Jesus? And the reason I want to start there is because um, you all know, if you're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus commands us to do things. He, in the scriptures, through the Old Testament, he's speaking, the Gospels, he's speaking, through the Apostles and the rest of the New Testament, he gives us commands of things that he wants us to do. And I just thought, let's start by sharing some of those. I'll put them up on the board so we have some tangibles to work on here. So what are some of the things that Jesus commands his followers to do? Love each other. I'll, I'll abbreviate some of these. What else? Pray. Absolutely. More. Spread the gospel. Okay. I'll, I'll say make disciples to be shorter. Go and make disciples. I'm sorry. What was that other one? Love your enemies. I'll put enemies down here. So we love each other and even love our enemies. What else? Trust. Uh Uh-oh. What else? What? Forgive. Forgive. How many people? Everyone who harms us. Forgive. Okay, what else? Serve. Okay, no worry. Uh, work hard at our jobs. He says that through Paul. Work at jobs. I also thought about give to the poor, right? He wants us to celebrate the gift of sex in marriage only, right? I'm sorry? He wants us to persevere. Meets together with other followers of Jesus. Celebrate communion together when we meet. I'm sorry. Worship him only. Okay. Right to uh, all the state of stewardship. That means we see all of our resources, time, energy, money, as gifts from him to be used as he'd want us to be using them. The word. Study the word, meditate on the word, pray over the word. Well, you guys, you nailed it. Look at this. 
Yes, yes. Uh, how about speak the truth, right? Don't lie. Um, speak kindly of people. Okay, I'll stop right there. You got a feel for this? So here's what I want you to, to just let this rest on you, and that is if you're a follower of Jesus, he is commanding you to do these things. These are commands. They're not suggestions. They're commands. Okay? This is what he wants us to do. This is how he wants us to live. And so why is it so important that we obey his commands? I just thought of two reasons. There's lots of possible reasons. Let me just throw out two so that you can see how important these are. One reason is because obeying Jesus' commands will show other people in the South Bay area here that Jesus is real. Think about Matthew 5.16. Jesus says, let your light so shine before all people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So as people see us, like at your workplace, as they see you loving that person who's been your enemy there, and as they see you loving them, as they see you giving to the poor, maybe having some downward mobility to free up money to care for the needy, as they see you suffering trials, difficulties with peace and strength, maybe even joy in Jesus, all those things will display that you have a source of joy and peace and strength. It's otherworldly. It's Jesus. They'll see that Jesus is real through your obedience. Do you feel the power of that? Mercy Hill Church, we need to obey Jesus because all the people in your neighborhood and at your workplace need to see in you that Jesus is real because then they'll put their trust in him and come to know him. That's one reason. Second reason is, not only will it show other people that Jesus is real, it will show you that your faith is real. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Okay? Not, it's not saying that Jesus is Lord. It's those who do God's will who will enter his kingdom. Now, just a parenthesis. We always need to be careful here. Jesus knows that none of his followers will obey him perfectly. That's not what he's talking about. Followers of Jesus do sin. We do stumble. None of us do this perfectly. None of us have this week. None of us have for the last ten minutes. Okay? It's not perfection. It's, it's passion. It's progress. It's, I want to obey you, Jesus. Help me to obey you. And when I don't, I confess and I repent. And I'm seeking, laboring, Striving to obey Jesus. That's my heart. I want to obey him. That's the mark that your faith is real. So two reasons it's important that we here at this church obey Jesus. One is, it'll show people around you that Jesus is real. And secondly, it'll show you that your faith, your salvation, is real. Very important. Okay, now, with that background, what do you do at those times when you have an an area of your life where you're struggling to obey Jesus. What do you do? How many of us have areas where we're struggling to obey Jesus? I hope all your hands go up. That's how it's supposed to be. It's like, whoa, really? I'm not the only one. Good news, you're not, okay? So we all have areas of obedience that we struggle in more than others. What do you do when you just don't have any motivation to read the Bible, for, for example? What do you do? What do you do when you 
have no desire to meet your neighbors. They're really different than you are. You don't agree with what they're doing. Jesus says, go, make disciples. You don't want to. What do you do when there's an area of obedience that you don't want to do? Or you are not motivated to pray. Or the person at your workplace who's been your enemy, you don't want to love them. What do you do? Let me ask it this way. What do many Christians do? What do most Christians do when they face an area of obedience that they're struggling with? Just throw out some answers here. Okay, pray. That can be helpful. Okay. What else? Avoid it. What do you mean by avoid it? Like, pretend it's denial, right? Okay. Because I'm doing okay in this and this and this. We'll just erase that one or something. Okay, so avoid it. Pray, avoid it. What else? Try to handle it myself. Like, try harder. Like, kind of that's the Nike approach, right? Just do it. Okay, well, how hard have you been gritting your teeth? Grit them harder. Okay? All right, so these are various ways. Or sometimes we just lapse into defeat, and we just say, well, I, you know, I guess I'm just not cut out for this. I'm, just, I'm not a very good Christian. Those are ways that we respond when we have areas in our lives where we're struggling to obey. What I want to focus on this morning is, what does the Bible say we should do at those times? Which are often when we have areas that we're struggling to obey in. And I'd like us to turn to the book of Hebrews to get the answer. Aren't you glad that in the Bible, God has given us all the most important questions are answered in the book? So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. That's, I forgot to say that. I'd like you all to be able to look up Hebrews 11, okay? Hebrews 11, in the Bibles we're passing out, page 1007. A little bit of background on the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a powerful book. It was written to help first century followers of Jesus who were facing persecution and severe suffering and temptation to drift away from Jesus, which would have alleviated their suffering if they would have turned on Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is urging them, be faithful to Jesus, be steadfast with Jesus, keep obeying Jesus. Powerful thrust of this book. And in Hebrews 11, he tells us about Abraham and what it was that enabled Abraham to obey in a very difficult situation. So look at what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. This is an amazing three verses here. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed. There's that word. He obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Okay, so here's three verses talking about Abraham's obedience. Now to dig a little deeper, let's start by focusing in on what was it exactly that God called Abraham to do? How was Abraham called to obey God? And to show you, take a look at this map up here. Uh, Verse 8 says, that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. 
Okay, here's what's going on. Let me just give you some background. Abraham was born and raised in Ur of the Chaldees. That's right there. It's a little small, but that's where it is. Okay, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Israel right here. Abraham was born right there in Ur of the Chaldees. Lived there for many years. This is modern-day Iraq, okay? Lived there for many years. City, big city, prosperous. Abraham was a very fairly wealthy man, he and his wife Sarah. So they lived there with you know, extended family, friends in this city. He was a moon worshiper, we read in the book of Joshua, I think it is. But then one day, God came to Abraham, revealed himself to Abraham, called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to trust God, turn away from his moon worshiping, trust the true and living God, leave Ur of the Chaldees, and travel from Ur all the way up to, here's how the roads go, 450 miles down to Israel. 450 mile trip is what God had called Abraham to take. So that's some step of obedience. I want you to leave your prosperous city or the Chaldees with your home and all the all that you have going on here and head 450 miles to a place you don't even know about. One big step of obedience. Second big step of obedience, when he got there, he obeyed. When he got there, we read in verse 9 that he lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with them of the same promise. Now, what that means is that he arrived in Palestine and he had no property there. He didn't own any land there, didn't have a house there. He lived as in a foreign land. He was migratory. He was living in a tent for years until his son Isaac was born. So this is decades. Remember how long it was for Sarah and Abraham to have their first child, Isaac? Long time. So all that time he was living in a tent, traveling around. And then after Isaac, decades more until Isaac had his son, Jacob. So Abraham, was he, he went from Ur, prosperous city, house, possessions, and he lived in Israel, something he didn't even know about, in a tent, no permanent home, with his son and his grandson for decades. And in fact, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 tells us that all through Abraham's life, he never received an inch of ground to own in Palestine. Okay? And yet the whole time, he was faithful. He trusted God. He obeyed God. God, you want me to stay here? Okay, stay here. Yes, okay. You want me to go? Go. Stay, stay. He obeyed God. So that's what God called him to do. Leave and then live for decades in a tent in Palestine. Now, how did Abraham obey God's call so faithfully? That's what the author wants us to focus on here in verses 8 and 9. And did you catch how he did it? Let's read it again. How did Abraham obey God's call? And how are you going to obey God's call to obey that's on you? Verses 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham obeyed. I, I should read this with more emphasis. By faith. Okay? Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So how did he obey? By faith. Twice the author emphasizes it. It's by faith. That's how he was enabled. It was not by By self-discipline, Abraham left. It was not by willpower. 
Abraham left. That's not how it was. It was by faith. Now, we're working hard on not slipping into cliches. So, okay, what does that mean? Really? Tangibly? Specifically? What did it mean that Abraham had faith? And look at verse 10. Here's where the author explains what it meant that Abraham had faith, what sustained him, what enabled him to obey God's call. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What's that talking about? What's this city that has foundations? Well, the fact that it has foundations, it means that this city lasts forever, the author wants us to understand. And it's a city designed and built by God. So this is no city presently on earth. This is the author of Hebrews' way of describing life ever after, the hereafter, if you will. It's his way of describing at the end of history when God creates a new heavens and a new earth and those who have trusted, followed Jesus will be there and for the first time, now we see God through a mirror dimly, then face-to-face fellowship with the living God. That's what Abraham was looking forward to. So here's how this all works. Back in Ur of the Chaldees, you don't need to put the map up, that's okay. Back when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, as a moon worshiper, God came to Abraham. And God changed Abraham's heart by his sovereign, gracious, saving work. Abraham was changed, and for the first time he owned up to the truth of who God was. He saw that his moon worshiping was just like a figment of his imagination to kind of ease his religious guilt. He created his own religion. People do that all the time. I used to do that. You used to do that. Okay. He saw that that moon worshiping stuff is for the birds. He saw who the true God was. He loved God. God changed his heart. He wanted to know God. His passion and joy for the rest of his life was to know the living God. And so then God said, trust me. Trust me. And if you trust me, I will bring you to face-to-face relationship with me in an everlasting city that has foundations that I've built and designed. Trust me. And Abraham says, I want to trust you. If I could be with you forever, that's all I want. God says, okay, trust me. Leave Ur, go to Palestine, live there in a tent for 150 years or however long it was. So, what enabled Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, leave all of his, his land, his home, take his wife? What enabled him to leave? He was trusting God's promise. I'm going to be with God forever. And that promise sustained him. That promise satisfied him. So he was willing to leave. What sustained Abraham then when he finally got to Palestine and he was living in tents? Quite a a downward move from where he was. What sustained him living in these tents? He was thinking about Ur and the nice house he had back there or whatever. What sustained him was, I'm going to be with God forever. The promise of being with God. What sustained him through those decades of living in tents, traveling from place to place? I'm going to be with God. I'm going to be with God. And so what enabled Abraham to obey God was faith in God's promise. Faith in his promises. That's how he obeyed all those years, by trusting God's promise. And the author of Hebrews 
wants us to understand that's how we obey as well. That's what's going to sustain and motivate our obedience as well. Now, in some ways we're just like Abraham, but there's one difference, at least one one difference, and that is we are living after Jesus came. Abraham lived before Jesus came. So we see Jesus. God came to earth in the person of Jesus. So we have the scriptures we can see much more clearly than Abraham saw who God is. His power, his goodness, his love, his compassion, his justice, his mercy, his reality, his glory, his majesty, his care. And so we can see all the more clearly who Jesus is. And we can see that the reason, even more clearly than Abraham saw, that the reason God can forgive somebody like me as sinners because Jesus was punished in my place on the cross. It just opens it all up. All of my sins paid for in Jesus. God, you can love me then and forgive me and change me? God says, yes. Repent. Trust me. Trust my holy son Jesus. You'll be forgiven. Your heart will be changed. And I will bring you into everlasting fellowship with me forever. So, Trust my promises. I'll I'll guide you. I'll provide for you. I'll strengthen you when you face temptation. I will comfort you when you have family members who who pass away. I will finally, I'll satisfy your heart, as as some have mentioned here, with my presence while you're on the earth. And then at the end, I'm going to bring you into my face-to-face presence forever. So trust me. So just like with Abraham, the way God spoke to Abraham... God speaks to us and we can see the ramifications all the more clearly through Jesus. And so just like with Abraham, he had faith in God's promise and that resulted in obedience. So with us, faith in God's promises results in obedience. Now, let's get real specific. How does that work? Let's take one example. Here's Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Now, what I'm hoping will happen this morning is that we'll start to see how often commands in Scripture are linked with promises in Scripture. This is so important to see. And I'll bet you many of us, we've never really seen that before, but either right before a command there's a promise, and then therefore do this, or right after the command there's a promise. So do this because of this. Promises and commands, most of the time, every command in the Scripture is linked with the promise. And it always is either explicitly or implicitly in the context. So let's look at this here. Check this out. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is, don't, don't get your influence from people who are not following Jesus. Verse 2. But his delight, the blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Now there's a command here, and there's a promise here. What's the command? Okay, avoid influences from people who aren't following Christ. What else? Delight in God's word and... Meditate on his word day and night. So let me just focus on that last one. End of verse 2. In his law he meditates day and night. There's the, the command. And what's the promise? It's verse 3, right? The promise is, get this, this is amazing. If you will meditate on God's word day and night, which means 
You know, meditation in our culture tends to mean emptying your mind of truth and just kind of zoning out. It's not what the Bible means. In the Bible, meditation means filling your mind with the truth of God's word and talking to Jesus about his word and pondering it, thinking about it, thanking him for it, asking him to help you understand it. So that's the command. Meditate on God's word day and night and what is promised, guaranteed, absolutely will happen if you do that is, it's a metaphor. Picture yourself like a tree, okay? You're a tree and you will be a well-watered tree, right? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. So your roots are sinking down into the soil and all the water you need is there. Constant supply of water, okay? So every bit of water you need, you will always have it to be... Oh, no water today. You'll always have all the water you need. Well-watered tree. Bearing fruit in its season. You'll always be bearing forth the fruit that you were intended to bring. Always. Fruit of kindness. The fruit of the Spirit. Fruitfulness in people's lives. Fruit bearing. Your leaf will never wither. By trials. By difficulties. By problems. Drought. Never. Your leaf will never wither. And then this last line is amazing. In all that he does... He prospers. Now that's some promise, isn't it? If you meditate on God's word day and night, you'll be a well-watered tree, always bearing fruit, never having your leaves wither, prospering in all that you do. Now, if you believe that promise, what will you want to do? You'll want to meditate on God's Word. Right? See, this is how God has put the Bible together. The Bible is not just a list of command, command, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It could have been a whole lot shorter, save a whole lot of ink, a lot easier to read. Just list, 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 list. The Bible is not just a list of commands because God doesn't just want us to be dutifully gritting our teeth, doing it, doing it, doing it, not doing that, not doing that, doing that, doing that, doing that. No! He wants us trusting His promises. And so the Bible is commands and promises linked together like this. So if you trust that promise, I mean, is there anybody here who doesn't want to be a well-watered stream, always bearing fruit in your season, non-withering leaves, in everything you do you prosper? Anybody like not want that? You all want that. If you trust this promise, if you really trust the promise, If you get this promise, feel it, trust it, know it, you will want to read the Bible. Right? So what should you do then if you're struggling to be motivated to read the Bible? Well, you shouldn't say, well, I just just got to try harder. Or, I know what I'll do, like I'll make myself a deal. If I read for 15 minutes, then I'll reward myself by getting to watch TV for two hours. I don't think God likes that. That's not like, no, that's not what he's talking about here. What I do, and I think what Abraham did, and what the psalmist is calling us to do, is that when I lose my motivation to read the Bible, think about the promise. Think about the promise. I want to be a well-watered tree. I'll be better watered by opening up the scriptures than by watching more television or by, you know, whatever I do, right? This is water for the soul because it's God's book. 
And because God meets us with his living presence as we open up the book humbly and prayerfully. And so when I am not motivated to read the word, I will spend time thinking about Psalm chapter 1 verse 3. Because when I'm not motivated, what does that show about me? If I'm not interested, if I'm like thinking, you know, like, what's some TV show that's on these days? I'm, I'm blanking out. Desperate Housewives. Oh, bad example. Okay. Desperate Housewives. Or it's like I'm thinking, that would really satisfy my heart. Ah, I just, this isn't working for me. ESPN, okay, like something else, please. Okay, so what I've got to do is I've got to say I'm not trusting your promises. I do not have faith in your promise. Psalm 1-3 right now, I don't have faith in it. So that's my problem. Because faith in his promises yields fruit. Faith in God's promises produces obedience. The power for obedience comes from faith in God's promises. It's like you're an electric plug, and the socket in the wall is promises. And if, if the socket's not plugged in, I mean, the fan's not going to turn. I mean, you could, you know, you could do this, like grit your teeth, I could do this for a long time, but the power to make the fan go is in the promises. The power to obey is in the promises. And so trusting in the promises will change my heart. Okay, I'm taking too long on this first one. Let's go to the second one. Another example. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Another very common verse, but I hope you'll see something different about it this morning. Let's read it. And notice what's the command and what's the promise. Okay? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's the command? Okay, don't be anxious. And pray. Let's focus on the prayer one. Pray with thanksgiving. So the command is, Paul's commanding us, Jesus through Paul is commanding us, when you're anxious, what should you do? Pray. What's the promise? Verse 7, right? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amazing promise? Philippians chapter 4. If we will pray and bring our requests before God with thanksgiving, God promises, He promises that His peace, the peace of God, will come upon you. And that peace can't be explained. It's like, I am feeling at peace even though the storms are blowing around me, okay? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will then guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It will be in the living presence of Jesus, knowing Jesus, seeing his power, seeing his love, seeing his goodness, and you'll be at peace. That's the promise. Now, so what happens to us if we trust that promise? I'm anxious, worried about money or, you know, kids. And I, if I bring my requests before God, tell them about them with thanksgiving, what will happen? Peace will come. Now let me ask you, this last week, when you've been anxious, how long did it take you before you brought your requests before God? Ten minutes? A day? Couple days, okay? I'm with you. I'm totally with you. 
The reason it takes us so long is because we don't believe the promise. We think more peace will come through me figuring out my plan. Okay, first I'll do this, and I'll do this. And there's nothing wrong with planning prayerfully, but oh, it's so much better to do that with peace. Okay? Or what else do we do when we're anxious? What do people do? Worry. Okay, it's true, okay? What else? Get angry. Alright, what else? Indulge. Okay, a little self-medication. Okay, whatever it might be. Alright, definitely. So, you're anxious. You don't feel like praying. What should you do? Look at the promise. Confess, Lord Jesus, I'm not believing this promise right now. I don't believe it. Forgive me. Help me to believe it now. Help me to see this. Thank you for this promise. What an amazing thing that you promised to give me your peace, to guard my heart with your peace, to guard my mind in Christ Jesus. You promised to bring your peace upon me when I pray. Help me to trust that. Help me now. Read it. Think about it. Thank him for it. Ask him for help with it. And as your trust in that promise grows, your motivation for prayer will grow as well. Does that make sense? Faith results in obedience. Faith in God's promise is the power for obedience. One other example. Then we'll get some questions here. Matthew 28, 18-20. be more brief on this one. First, for that kind of stuff, but on your own time, befriending people, showing Jesus to them, sharing Jesus with them. No matter what comes back at you, you're under God's control. It's all under God's control. Jesus has all authority. And then the last promise is, I'm with you always to the end of the age. There's a special presence of Jesus that comes to you when you go as a missionary into your workplace or your neighborhood and meet people, share with people, love people, serve people, befriend people. So what happens when I trust these promises? I've been working on trusting these. About three years ago it dawned on me that I am weak in this area. And so I've been asking Jesus to change my heart and it's starting to change. In fact, I've got two friends who I think over the last like month or two have, have come to trust Christ, which is very exciting. So this is a process that, happened, that started happening three years ago. But what happens when you trust these promises that the highest authority in the universe is backing me up as he commissions me to go and that he, his presence, will be with me in a special way as I go. I love your presence, Lord. I want your presence more than anything else. Okay, you'll have even more of my presence as you go and make disciples. As I trust those promises... My heart gets stirred to meet my neighbors. My heart gets stirred to talk to people I meet out on the trail where I walk and and pray sometimes. My heart gets stirred to spend time in the neighborhood and not, not be too busy doing other things. My heart gets changed. The commands and the promises. So the principle I want you to get from this is when we trust God's promises, we obey God's command. So what do you do then if you have an area of your life that you're struggling to obey? I would encourage you to find promises that pertain to that area and pray over them, ponder them until your trust in them rises. And as your trust in them rises, your motivation to obey in the related way will increase as well. That's what Abraham did. That's what the scriptures call us to do. Yeah. Yeah. See, let me challenge you. What's in your mind as you're obeying Jesus? 
What would have been in Abraham's mind while he was obeying God? Verse 10. He's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's what would have been in Abraham's mind. What's in your mind as you're seeking to obey God? I would guess that for many of us, what's in our mind is, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to read the Bible. I'm supposed to be part of a home group. That's not what should be in our minds. That's just like really weak. I mean, that will last you like about five milliseconds. Or you'll get real legalistic and proud of what you're doing. Here's an illustration. I, feel like, um, I wrote it down here so I could be fairly clear on it. Imagine that God came to you and said that if you'd walk to the Wells Fargo Bank down on Blossom Hill, there'd be a million dollars waiting for you. Okay? Just imagine. Walk down. When church is over, okay? Walk down. Million dollars Wells Fargo Bank. So the promise is there's a million dollars down there. Why should you be walking because of the million dollars that's down there? Okay, so let's say we all we all head out and we're walking down, but about you know a quarter mile down there, all of a sudden some of us we're like we're like we stop walking. We're just like we're just kind of sitting around, slowing down, stop. And and if if you walked up and said to somebody who was slowing down, why are you slowing down? And what, what if they said, well, it's just I guess I'm just not disciplined enough to do this. I just don't have enough willpower to keep walking. I guess I'm just really not spiritual enough to keep doing this. The problem is that they have forgotten the promise. Right? And I feel like Satan has done something very strategic and way too effective. And he has blinded us to the promises and filled us with... He's led us by the commands, let us see the commands, but he's blinded us to the promises. I think many followers of Jesus were, were walking, but we forgot why we're walking, and it's just boiled down to duty. I'm supposed to do this. I'll bet you most of us could list way more commands than we could list promises. Right? Because we've missed this. Satan has won a strategic victory in blinding us to the promises because that's the power. That's where the power is. It's like Jesus has said, here's the car of the Christian life. I want you to drive it to glory. Drive it to heaven. Okay? And faith in God's promises is the gas that goes in the gas tank. But we've forgotten about the faith and the promises. We've forgotten about the gas in the gas tank. So too many of us are pushing the car. And man, the Christian life is hard. And I'm just, I'm losing my motivation. And I know I'm, not supposed, to, I'm supposed to get the car to heaven, but it's just a lot harder than it's supposed to be. Pull over to the gas station of the Bible, right? Fill her up. Does that make sense? This is, I mean, when I first saw this, my dad taught this to me 30 years ago. This, I mean, I'd been a Christian for like four or five years at the time, but it just transformed my life. And it's been transforming me when I get it, when I live it, ever since. So here's two things I want us to do this week. First of all, you have an area, I I have areas where we're not obeying like we should. The solution is not to beat yourself up over it. The solution is not to throw in the towel and say, I guess I'm, I'm just never going to be a good Christian. The solution is not to try harder. Accountability can be helpful, but that's not the main thing. Okay? The main thing is trusting the promises. What promises does Jesus give me to sustain me in obeying that command, to motivate me in obeying that command, to empower me to obey that command, 
What promises? Abraham would never have left Ur if God hadn't told him, I'm going to give you a city with foundations whose designer and builder is me. You're going to be with me forever. So trust me. That's what sustained him all the way through. That's what will sustain you. So find a promise. Confess your lack of trust in his promise. Repent. Pray the promise. Meditate on the promise until the Holy Spirit starts to stir faith in your heart that this is true. He will do this. And then your motivation for obedience will rise as well. So that's one thing I want you to work on doing. All of us here. And then, secondly, in our home group, so let's come together and talk about how's it going? What's your area of obedience? And so as you've been seeking to find a promise, trust a promise, pray over a promise so that your motivation rises, what questions have come up? What roadblocks have you hit? What stumbling blocks? What doubts? What, what wonderments? How's it been going? So let's come together and talk about how that's going. And the aim of all this is that we grow then in obedience so that we are all the more assured that our faith is real and so that people in our neighborhoods and workplaces will see the reality of Jesus around us. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Thank you that you wrote the Bible the way you did. Not just a long list of commands that were supposed to be self-motivated, self-disciplines to do, but that you filled your word with promises which capture our hearts and comfort us and sustain us and motivate us. Thank you for Abraham's example that for He left Ur to go to this place he didn't even know about and for decades he lived in a tent because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is you, God. Help us to be like Abraham. I pray that this week each of us would have the joy of finding a promise that we're not trusting, asking for your help, trusting the promise and that you would change our hearts and that you would strengthen our obedience in that area. And give us really good times in our home groups, Lord, as we talk about these things and wrestle with these things together. Bring your power upon us, Lord.